0: Hi, this is Feed Play Love, the parenting podcast that you can fit in your pocket. Short, informative, and interesting interviews about everything from toilet training to how emotion coaching works. I'm your host, Siobhan Hunt. The next interview is one of the diamonds from our archive. Enjoy. Night terrors can be terrifying for parents as well as their toddlers. I remember once when Darcy woke, well, we thought she woke up. She was crying hysterically and screaming. She looked awake, but even though we were holding her and comforting her, she wasn't responding at all and she just kept screaming and crying. We were quite lucky that didn't really happen again. But for some parents, being woken by a screaming child can happen every night Dr. Chris Seaton is a paediatric sleep specialist at the Woolcock Institute for Medical Research. Chris, welcome to Kindling Conversation. Thanks, Siobhan. What's the difference between a nightmare and night terrors?
1: Uh, There's a big difference, and in fact, probably night terrors is not a great name because it's so close to the name nightmare. But nightmares are, are dreams where you've got what's called negative dream content, you know, something that's not pleasant, And so when we all know what a nightmare is because we've all had one, and they're particularly common in children, when children have nightmares, they can give you a vivid description of their dream or their nightmare, and they have perfect memory of the events. Uh, With a night terror, which occurs in another stage of sleep, they express fear, so it can look like a nightmare, but they don't have memory of the event. And in fact, when kids have night terrors, they're not usually aware of any of it at all.
0: And what does it look like? I mean, uh, I imagine when a child has a nightmare, they probably wake up, they might be crying or a little bit distressed. What does night terrors look like?
1: You're you're right. So kids with nightmares and night terrors appear distressed, but the child with a nightmare can quite quickly be consoled because they're fully awake. And because they're fully awake, they're, you know, they're responsive to their mum and dad's reassurance and cuddles and so on. In contrast, kids who are having night terrors are asleep. And in the same way that a sleepwalker or a sleep talker is asleep, and this is really important for parents to understand because a screaming child does not look to be asleep. You would assume a screaming child is awake. But a screaming child who's having a night terror is in fact asleep. And because they're asleep, they're not responsive to their parents. And in fact, uh, their parents can amplify or worsen the night terrors by trying to console the child. So this is very paradoxical and counterintuitive. I'm, I'm trying to hug my child with a night terror, but they're pushing me away. So in fact, touching and hugging kids with night terrors makes the night terror worse whereas hugging and helping a child with a nightmare obviously makes things better.
0: What can you do if a child is in... Well, if, you, if they're, you know they're experiencing night terrors, how should parents actually deal with it?
1: There are two really good things to do. This doesn't necessarily cure the night terrors, but it certainly lessens, lessens them a lot. Um, sleep deprivation and irregular sleep patterns really brings out night terrors. It makes them longer and more frequent. So regulating a child's sleep very carefully uh, if they're having night terrors is very helpful. So what we mean by that is really strictly regulating bedtime and having a really nice uh, pre-bedtime relaxing routine and avoiding sleep deprivation as, as, as much as you can. Um, and a lot of parents will say, well, look, I, I do that anyway. But some of the kids we see with night terrors do have irregular bedtimes and difficulties getting to sleep. And treating treating their irregular sleep is very helpful. And the second thing, which again sounds counterintuitive, is to say to parents, try not to touch your child and just see if that helps. It's often hard to do because you're, you're really saying, look, stand back and don't do too much. Uh, and why we say, you know, try to minimize touching is because we know touching tends to ramp up the night terrors. So touching... In, in night terrors, there's a primitive brain response and the asleep brain during a night terror thinks that touching is a threat. It's like the tiger in the jungle. So because the child is, is asleep, the touch is misinterpreted as a threat and the child tries to escape from that by ramping up the night terror.
0: And um, what kind of age does do these um, night terrors typically start? I'm, I'm just wondering, when you talk about sleep regulation there often comes a time when we start wondering whether our child needs to drop their day sleep. Is yeah. that part of it and, and is it applicable? I mean, can they start really early, the night terrors?
1: They can. I mean, we, we see them in in babies, um, you know, children occasionally under 12 months, but certainly the peak age or the common age is age three. And that, as you say, that's the age often of transition from daytime naps to no naps and sleep regulation in that age group is difficult and that's part of the reason why night terrors are so common in the age group Um, I think, you know, when we say sleep regulation we say as much as you can do so if a three-year-old child is having a daytime nap at daycare then it's good if they can, you know if you can try and get them to have it at home and as much as possible regulate their nighttime, bedtime as well but when they're in transition, they can, you know, they, as you know, they can have some days of the week where they will nap and other days where they won't, and that will throw out the regulation of their, uh, their bedtime at night.
0: And what about um, the ways children are sleeping? And by that I mean, um, does it have any impact on night terrors, whether they're in a room on their own, they're sharing with siblings or even co-sleeping with their parents? No. Right, so um, it doesn't make any difference.
1: No, not unless um, not unless co-sleeping or, or bedroom sharing delays their sleep. so if you um, you know if you have two three-year-old identical twins who both have night terrors and you just put one of them in a co-sleeping situation or a bedroom sharing as long as they're bedtime and sleep time is the same, the environment doesn't make a difference. So the only way the environment impacts on night terrors is through delaying uh, the onset of sleep or or making the the sleep time later.
0: And in terms of the environment, I know that um, there are different philosophies when you're starting to, well, you know, from day dot, when you're trying to get your child to sleep, about whether um, ambient noise is a good thing. Some children respond well to white noise. Some children like the radio. And some parents like to try and have a a normal level of noise so people don't have to creep around on eggshells. Do you know if uh, noise levels has any impact on whether a child experiences night terrors?
1: No, again, it it doesn't. Um, I mean, if if any of those environmental things like noise level or they can be used in fact to regulate sleep so a lot of people will use white noise as an aid for their child to go to sleep and if that helps a child go to sleep that will in fact help the night terrors obviously you know loud noises and things that wake kids up uh, you know are not good for sleep and not good for night terrors but really I, I you know we encourage parents to use things like that um, you know we don't really view it as a medical issue we we let parents choose, and as long as the environment is not having a negative impact on sleep, um, it, it's fine. We like bedroom environments, not obviously not to be too noisy, not to be too hot or cold, and obviously at night not to be too light or bright.
0: And do we have? Do we know what? causes night terrors. I think I read once there was some connection between screen time perhaps like watching television straight before bed or is that that nothing that nothing's been proven on that front?
1: Well no, that that's actually true. So screens before bed, particularly for kids, um, but even for adults, some adults screens emit what's called blue light and blue light turns down our brain's melatonin which is our sleep hormone. So Having too much screen time before bed is actually telling the brain to wake up. Uh, and, and that, again, can trigger night terrors through delaying a child's ability to get to sleep. And this is why, when we talk about sleep regulation, we like a, a bit of pre bedtime routine and downtime with, you know, again, things that a lot of parents of young kids do anyway a bit of reading time, um, some relaxation. Uh, and perhaps some time away from the screens at least in the 45 minutes before bedtime so again the screens don't cause night terrors directly but indirectly through delaying sleep onset and back to your question about what causes them they're they're genetic Um, so that means that if and they're clustered in a group of disorders called parasomnias and parasomnias are night terrors sleepwalking sleep talking there's certain forms of body rocking that kids will do and head banging. And these are all characterized by the fact that the kids are asleep. They're not aware of it. And often in the family of kids who have these parasomnias, the mum or the dad or, or someone in the family has a history of those things in their own childhood, particularly the common ones like sleepwalking and sleep talking. When we do sleep studies on kids, which we, we do a lot of sleep studies at the, at the Wilcock Institute at Sydney University. Kids with night terrors have little electrical triggers for them that we see on their brain waves, and we think this is the genetic thing that they inherit. They inherit these little spiky brain waves, and the spiky waves trigger night terrors in little kids, and the same spiky waves will trigger sleep walking and sleep talking in older kids in the sort of seven to ten year old age group.
0: And it's funny that you say that because um, I mentioned in the introduction that my daughter, who's now three, once had what seemed to be a night terror. It didn't continue. But one thing that she's been doing lately, and I'd be interested to know if any of our listeners have these sort of strange experiences, is she'll wake up. Well, well, I think she's awake, but I've noticed this even happened this morning, like about three o'clock in the morning or something, um, where she'll say, ow, 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 ow. My foot hurts, or my ear hurts, or something. One part of her body hurts, and that she needs either cream or a band aid. And I find it incredible. She, firstly, she appears to be still asleep. Um, I wonder if there's something that's actually wrong with her because she's so specific that she wants a band aid and some cream to sort it out. And um, and I was thinking, oh, maybe they're growing pains. But it sounds to me that it, it might be something like what you're saying—that she's actually asleep. And this is just some weird way her brain's reacting to those little spikes in her. What's going on? I mean, do you think I'm reading that correctly? Yeah, or? I,
1: I, I think I think you can have my job. <laughs> uh, think, yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I mean, kids when they sleep talk, they they tend to talk about common stuff. So um, yeah, my foot hurts, or uh, um, I need to, you know, I need to go and kick the soccer ball, or um, Common things like that, and you know, I usually mums or dads like you know you can, as you did, you can say I think she's asleep. Um, but what's interesting is some kids with sleep talking they can have a bit of a conversation with you as well.
0: <laughs> yes, so well, you
1: can you can ask yeah you can say something and and she'll give a reply. Now that that doesn't mean she's awake, um, and she's more likely, in fact, to be asleep than awake. Um, one of the tests you can do is in an open-ended way, that is, without giving her any hints. Ask her the next day how she slept. You know, mm-hmm. did you wake up last night? Did you have any issue, you know, problems? And if, don't say, did you have a sore foot? Because that sort of preps her. But an open-ended question like, did you wake up? You know, did you wake up last night? Now, if that's sleep talking, she she will not remember it.
0: Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure. I think I might have actually said, do you remember having a, did you have a sore foot or were you just asleep? And she actually said to me, no, I was asleep. <laughs> so anyway, look, Chris, thank you so much for your time this thank afternoon. You. That's been very insightful. Thank you.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. Bye for now.
0: Bye-bye. That was Dr. Chris Seaton, who's a paediatric sleep specialist at the Woolcock Institute for Medical Research. Feed, Play, Love is a babyology podcast produced and presented by me, Siobhan Hunt. I'd love to hear from you. So if you'd like to get in touch, email me at feedplaylove at parentbrand.com.au. See you next time.